Welcome to this episode of Anesthesia on Air, the podcast from the Royal College of Anesthetists. I'm Dr Sarah Thornton. I'm a consultant anesthetist at the Royal Bolton Hospital Foundation Trust. I'm also an elected member of the Royal College Council. Today, I am joined on the podcast by Dr Ian Roberts, who is not only an anesthetist, but much more excitingly, he works for the FIA, the Fédération Internationale d'Automobile, as the Vice President of the Medical Commission and as Medical Rescue Coordinator for the Formula One Racing. Ian studied at Leicester Medical Medical School and completed his training in the Midlands. And he's very keen on neuroanesthesia, neurointensive care, as well as paediatric anesthesia and intensive care. However, Ian now travels around the world to all the F1 Grand Prix events, averaging around 20 countries per year. He's one of the key medical staff no tra- on track and can be seen riding in the medical car at the start of every single race. Ian has started over 200 Grand Prix, but unfortunately he hasn't won one yet. Uh, now, Ian, now welcome to Anesthesia on Air. So, how did you end up on the Formula One grid? Good morning, Sarah. Um, yeah, um, thank you very much indeed for inviting me along. Um, a real, a real pleasure to uh, to be having a, a chat with you. Um, <clears throat> I I got into um, officiating in into motorsport relatively late. Um, I've always enjoyed watching motorsport, um, but never really been satisfied just just watching. I've always been very keen to be getting involved with things. And um, I mentioned this to um, a colleague when I was uh, a registrar um, and um, he said, oh, there's somebody I need you to meet. Um, And um, in fact, I think we were at an association of anaesthetists meeting uh, in Birmingham. And uh, he took me along to uh, to see uh, Dr. David Cranston, who at that time was the chief medical officer for Silverstone. Uh, unfortunately, David um, had to leave early, um, but eventually I got to see David, went down to Silverstone to meet him and um, in, invited to, to join the, the medical team there. And I started off trackside um, in, in all weathers um serving my uh, as it, apprenticeship as it were um eventually or because i just continued to go really enjoyed it um went to the various national international meetings um and i sort of graduated from from trackside into um one of the medical fast medical cars um worked in the medical center um and that's as i became more senior in in terms of my uh, anesthesia practice um and I was invited to join the Grand Prix medical team. Um, David was also uh, chief medical officer for um, for the British Grand Prix. Um, and as time went by, I became David's deputy and then ultimately the chief medical officer for the British Grand Prix. Um, and that's where I worked uh, very closely with the with the FIA, the FIA medical delegate. And there was a change in um, in staffing uh, that was happening with the FIA, and I received a, a phone call. Um, I was out, I think it was out walking the dog or something, and I had this phone call, and they said, uh, "How how do you, would you be interested? You don't have to give us an answer now, but would you be interested in joining us in um, as uh, a medical uh, medical rescue coordinator for Formula One?" Uh, I think I took about ten milliseconds and said yes. Um, so that was it. That was uh, that was in about September 2012, and I, I joined F1 um, 
for the 2013 season and um that's uh, so I did my 10th 10th season last year wow so so you travel around the world for every single grand prix you go to everyone yes um and and although it sounds extremely glamorous it's it it's well, I suppose it is. I mean, at, at the races, it certainly is. Um, but it's a lot of um, a lot of travel, um, lots of jet lag, um, uh, hotels which generally are okay, um, and lots of time away from home. So it's it's a it's a double edged sword, really. Um, you can't you can't do it without spending time away, um, and you know you put up with um, with with the. Uh, with the not discomforts but you you just put up with the time time away do you still manage to do some clinical work as well in terms of clinical work yes i i, I still manage part-time um which was reasonably uh, substantial at the beginning when there were not so many races but as, as the years have gone by they've added more and more races so it has become increasingly difficult to um to to uh, take part in, in in clinical work, but I still have done, still maintain skills, um, which have been quite useful um, over the over the years when for for certain interventions, um, and yeah, maintain my my uh, my registration and, and clinical practice. Um, I do work alongside um, a national doctor when I'm away. Uh, the rules are that um, there has to be a national doctor in the car with me because that's part of the liaison process with the the local medical team um, and that works extremely well um, under most circumstances um, the the skill level of the doctor who is with me does vary in terms of their motorsport experience but they generally are uh, doctors who are um, very experienced in their own um, their own specialty uh, it's just that they may lack the exposure to the motorsport side of things. So um, I have to keep them safe um, as well as keeping my, the driver and myself safe um, um, and allow them to ap- apply their skills should uh, should it become necessary. So that must be a very interesting and slightly difficult part of your role is integrating yourself into different medical systems throughout the world because there must be some quite big differences between how they do stuff or is or is it the basics the same um the basics are are the same but um there is a, a quite a large amount of diplomacy that has to go on um we go to um 2022 in fact this season 23 different jurisdictions and the the FIA sets a a, a standard um which all of the circuits and medical services have to abide by in, in virtually all the cases those standards are exceeded but um, we still have to work within the the local framework and there are, we have to allow for some regional variation um, the, the the rules are set so that there is a, a basic minimum um, and in the past, it's been um, quite telling that some organisers, not the medical people, but the organisers want to get away with us and pay for as little as they possibly can. So we can go in and say, well, actually, um, if, the, if we're not to a certain standard, the race doesn't happen. Um, in my 10 years, we've done it once or twice. We've had to 
really put our foot down and say this isn't acceptable but on the whole that's it it, um, it, it is um the medical staff it's very much dependent upon whether they have a, a, a um a very uh, big motorsport um uh, presence for some countries we go to they do very little motorsport either amateur or professional um and they may just have the a grand prix so the the medics uh, sorry doctors paramedics nurses they they don't have the exposure to um the the types of or the application of of um pre-hospital care within the motorsport arena um and sometimes it's quite amusing because you know they'll they'll put someone forward who is highly skilled but unfortunately they 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 don't know how to apply it in our particular situation and that's not their fault that's uh, it's just a, a matter of matter of fact so how is part of your job actually training these people to uh, to understand what's going to be required of them sometimes it is um what we expect when we arrive is that the the team have been trained to um to a minimum standard that they understand how to intervene um in a in an incident um that they have a an understanding of the application of of their skills um on a track there there does there are times when we do need to um do some remedial work um for example we've had times where we've been away and the the extrication teams have been not up to our standard and we've spent some considerable time um training them um again it's usually because they don't have a background of motorsport and um a group of paramedics for example or firemen um or marshals have been brought together and um they they've they've done some training um but it may be not quite enough um and we've spent we we normally arrive on a wednesday um before a, a, an event and we have to go through um a, a some form of training or remedial work so tell me about this extra uh, extracting someone from a car so what what modifications do you insist on in, in the car do you how much influence do you have in and uh, making a car easy to extra extricate someone from um there are or uh, quite a number of different techniques for for removing a driver from from a a, a prepared race car now the the technique um will vary whether it's a saloon or a, or a single seater so mostly i deal with uh, single seaters um now I, I used to do rally um and um i used to work with saloon cars but for single seaters there are a number of construction rules um whereby the um the the, the monocoque which is the essentially the survival cell um is fitted with a an extricatable seat um, which means that the the driver can be um, removed from the from the car um, in in his seat, and so he's he's basically uh, there are already um, straps and clips integrated into the seat. The the driver is immobilized from in terms of C spine and head, 
um, by some additional equipment which the extrication teams carry. Um, he's strapped, he or she is strapped in and then the whole seat is lifted out um, and then the driver is removed from the seat and transported to the medical centre, um, usually on a, on a, on a beanbag. Um, I was just going to say, that be, those beanbags, you know, that you suck the air out of, is that the ones you mean, the, the vacuum-sealed ones? Yeah, exactly that, exactly that. What's in your car in terms of kit? What have you got? Is it the usual sort of anaesthesia transfer bag or, or is there a lot more to it than that? Well, I, um, I, I sort of work on three levels. Um, I, in, in my race suit, um, I have um, some, uh, some glove, um, clinical gloves, um, I have an airway, um, I have some shears. Uh, and that, will, um, that sort of gets me out of trouble in sort of 95% of, of any incident. So I can uh, um, intervene with an airway, um, I can cut things, and uh, that's where we start. Then actually in the, the car with me, I have a small trauma bag. It's um, size of a sort of a modest size handbag, I guess. Uh, and in that um, I have, uh, again, some airways, um, eye gel. Um, I have a BVM, which is collapsed down into a little, a little container. Um, IV access, a few more bits and pieces of cutting equipment, um, a couple of uh, couple of tourniquets. Oh, sorry, I should also say I carry a tourniquet on me. And then, should it, things be going really badly in the back of the car, there's a trauma bag, so um, I can um, do a um, video uh, guided intubation. Um, I've got um, cricothyroidotomy. I can do tracheostomy. Um, there's um, uh, intraosseous, sternal intraosseous um, device, some fluids. Um, so it's it's a, a trauma bag that basically we can up the ante um, if um, if necessary. Um, I carry some burns dressings. Um, well, um, yeah, technically not dressings, but they for for cooling. We don't carry water. We carry the the burns um, uh, cooling dressings. Um, defibrillator monitor. Um, we carry two extinguishers, one powder uh, and one which is water-based, so we can, um, if necessary, extinguish fire. But it's we, we're not um, focused on the car; we're focused on the driver. So that powder is to put out either the driver or me, um, if uh, if that if it comes to it. Um, we also carry a, uh, a cutter, so I can cut the halo. Um, and alongside of that, the national doctor also brings uh, a trauma kit. So we can look after two, two drivers at any one time uh, immediately. And then, of course, um, that's when the cavalry arrives. So um, what tends to be forgotten is that we work with a medical team. So there'll be three or four other fast medical cars, um, two or three extrication teams, um, a variety of ambulances um, and there will be depending upon the circuit and the circumstances there'll be a number of trackside doctors on foot so whilst we're the first intervention um, there are um, plenty of other resources to be uh, to be sent to us. And how many of the, those interventions you've just described you have the kit for have you had to do in anger over the last 10 years? Um, in anger probably three or four um, because what we we're there when the other safety measures are um, surpassed or compromised, 
over um, well since 1978 really when Professor Watkins uh, got involved with Formula One um, the safety elements in Formula One have have increased tremendously um, up until 78 there were several deaths a year um, in Formula One um, from 78 onwards um, we're probably looking at um, four um, because of the way that the engineering um, and the safety elements have been um, developed uh, and put into Formula One in particular. Um, now, Formula One's a special case in that, um, that those elements are put in. Um, and of course, it should trickle down into sort of other professional and amateur sport. And it, and it has done. But motorsport still is, as the, the ticket will tell you, uh, motorsport is dangerous. And um, you know there are a number of uh, serious uh, uh, injuries and fatalities every year worldwide, but um, Formula One, no, we've we've seen um, we've seen huge huge leaps in in safety in the early days, and of course the FIA, through its safety and research um, and engineering programs, have have improved driver safety no end. So. I know we have lots of telemetry on the cars, but is the telemetry on the humans? So do they, do they, their teams or you monitor their heart rate, all those kind of um, physiological parameters? Is any of that monitoring going on during a race? Yes, the um, I'm personally involved with um, with a um, with the biometric glove. We um, Alan and I. Alan is the um, medical car driver. Um, we um, saw an issue um, particular, that particularly came to a head with Carlos Sainz uh, when he had his uh, crash in Sochi that we had limited access to him and thought, well, wouldn't it be good if we'd already got something, some monitoring on the driver? So between us, we, we uh, developed the biometric glove that is used in, in F1. Um, we developed the electronics and also the sensor um so the glove will um uh monitors pulse pulse oximetry and um it monitors motion so we can actually see um during a rescue uh we can monitor the driver um and via sort of different surrogates we can imply on the the condition of the of the driver the the glove is monitoring the driver all of the time um, and all of the data is stored in the electronics in, in the glove. But um, I only interrogate the electronics when the driver becomes a patient, because up until that point, that's all performance data. Uh, so that's that's it. Once the driver becomes a patient, then um, I can I can monitor him, and the data only comes to me. So um, although we can send the data to race control, um, it's it's kept with me for data protection purposes. So the teams don't sort of monitor their their drivers' physiological parameters in any way. Well, they we know they do, but they shouldn't. Um, there are strict rules about anything that. Uh, yeah, there are strict rules about what what touches the driver, um, and anything that touches the driver's skin has to undergo uh, an homologation process. Um, which we did with our sensor. So basically our pulse oximetry sensor um, is encased in um, a, a silicon 
um, which um, does not transmit heat, but also um, can survive fire. Um, so our sensor can actually survive up to 900 degrees. Um, the glove will be dust, but our sensor survives. So, so it's a bit of a crazy level of of, of uh, requirement, really. But um, so yeah, the, the, they they do put things on the driver. They put ECG electrodes. They put um, things like the chest monitoring straps. But actually, they're not supposed to. Um, that's against the rules, um, unless it's it's been homologated. And um, to my knowledge. There are no homologated monitoring devices except for the the the, 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 the biometric glove. So, do you uh, does you is your role just during the race, or do you look after the drivers outside of the race environment? All of the drivers uh, in Formula One have um, um, a medical team that's responsible for them. So it's a it's a usually a private ar arrangement um, either as an individual or several of them will employ um, a doctor or um, paramedic to look after their sort of general well-being um, but they have huge um, huge resources at, at their disposal they you know um, performance coaches physiotherapists um, sports physicians uh, and that very much depends upon uh, upon their budget um, and what the team are likely to pay for at the uh, so the answer to your question is no I, I don't um, except for the to ensure that their declared fitness for the purposes of their uh, super license that they are fit to race um, and they abide by those particular rules um, if there is an issue that we um, that would compromise their their license status, then yes, we are involved and um, we do everything we can to to ensure that um, they can be reintegrated should they have had an injury and their license is removed. So we we try and get them reintegrated as soon as we we can, depending upon their medical condition. Um, and then at the race again, they they were, they would be generally generally uh, looked after by their 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 team but should there be an incident on the track um, then myself and um, the uh, the other medical delegate because there are two of us um, we would in we would then um, take great interest in their uh, their care um, and recovery so mostly the, the the trauma side of things although I have um, you know on t uh, on occasion needed to be involved with other um, other uh, medical issues um, if they have to go to hospital for for anything else uh, for example if it would impinge on their license condition then then I, I would need to uh, need to know that what other other physiological stresses do, does a racing driver undergo so they they undergo g-forces don't they they have monitors for g-force is that right so and they also get dehydrated don't they yeah, the the the, the G forces are. Um, I mean, they they certainly train for the constant G forces that they're under um, when they're um, when they're actually driving. Um, we're in, certainly interested in the G forces that the driver um, experiences during any track incident. Um, there are um, accelerometers on the car. Um, there are also a, a accelerometers in the drivers radio earpieces and should the driver be involved in an incident then we interrogate the accident data recorder uh, which is 
a truly the, the the car's g-forces but it's a surrogate for um how the driver um uh, or what the driver has experienced but later on we get to um see the 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 g-forces that are um applied to the the driver's head through the, the through the earpiece g-forces um the dehydration as you mentioned there it can be quite severe um and um one of the very first times I had to extricate a driver was uh, not through an accident at all. And it was um, at the time a GP2 driver because the, we have other series with us. And he, he drove into the, um, into the pit lane post-race and couldn't get out of his car. He'd, he'd almost literally got total body cramp. Um, he was so dehydrated. Um, so, um, and, and, he was in agony and we literally had to we had to lift him out because um because he was in such a such a state um and he had to go off to a med center to for sort of some some rehydration therapy um but yeah the drivers depending upon the the, the conditions certainly um can lose several liters um of fluid and which is why sometimes when you see them out and about on their the parade laps and things they're they're busily sucking away on their bottles of uh, of, of um, isotonic drinks etc um so by the time they've all filled up doing that <laughs> do they not just need a wee then uh halfway through the race well, they they do, um, but <laughs> the the other thing is, um, so that they're they're busily topping themselves up um, at the beginning, but um, as soon as they um, they have taken the cars out of the garage and put them on the grid, um, that's where you see them all running off to. They're all off to empty their bladders, and um, they're uh, yeah for all that all that all that fluid. Um, so yeah, there's normally a queue of uh, the toilets for just before a race, uh, which is quite it's. A, how funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, you you mentioned safety, and it's re a really big part of your job. So, how much influence do you have on 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 safety measures? Are there new ones in the pipeline all the time? Uh, what are the ones you think are the most have made the most impact? Sorry, that's a lot of questions. Um, we, we we do get to, to to comment for sure. I mean, if um, if we have any incident, um, there is a, an investigation into every single incident to see um, why it happened and if there was anything else that might sort of ameliorate the the consequences of of the accident. Because you know, motorsport is dangerous, and you know, safety is one of those real odd words about about motorsport we 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 basically uh, manage risk we mitigate risk because otherwise we might as well just dress the the driver in some cotton wool and put him in front of an xbox um so you know there, there is going to be risk and what we we're trying to do is 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 manage it um I'll, so the risk management comes down to, in in my mind, two main things. That is regulation, and that's actually um, ensuring that the circuits um, make their their um, their tracks as safe as you possibly can, um, but they retain excitement for the driver doing the doing his work, and also for the for the spectator. Um, so putting and, and ensuring that there are appropriate barriers, runoff areas, those sorts of things. The there have been big 
changes over the years in terms of um, the, the types of barriers that are used. I mean, traditionally we use um, tyre barriers, but there's, on, there's continuing um, monitoring of the, the way that tyre barriers are used. There are things, the, the, the other barrier, Tech Pro, uh, there are others, but Tech Pro is the main one that we use in Formula One. Um, and the, the presence of that and arresting a, um, a, a car and reducing the, um, the energy um, that, that the cars have, bringing it from a couple of hundred miles an hour to, to zero in a very short space of time. Um, you know, you, you, there's a lot of engineering goes into those things. And then engineering for the cars uh, and making the cars safer for the drivers to be in um, so that they don't fall apart. Although when you do see a crash in Formula One, it looks pretty horrendous as carbon fibers going all over the place, but that's designed to do that. And the central bit, the, the monocoque, the safety cell, um, that is um, you know, fairly impervious, um, but, but still things happen. Um, and you can't engineer your way out of everything. The problem with engineering is that you solve one problem. I mean, sometimes you just move it somewhere else. Um, there was a, a tragic accident. There was a tragic accident a couple of years ago in Spa um, in Formula Two, and in fact, the the side panel of the the monocoque was pushed over because of the the, the T bone accident that he had. Um, and there's a lot of work now on the 2024. Uh, Formula 2 car to strengthen all of that but if you strengthen one part you basically move the weakness to another so there's a lot of not necessarily compromise but there's a there's a lot of clever engineering got to go in to make sure that the whole thing remains a firm and protective structure. Uh, so the hands uh, the head and neck support uh, thing how how effective is that in terms of keeping their head and neck immobile? Um, very effective. I mean, we, we've certainly not seen any of the, um, in recent times, the, the horrendous injuries that, um, the drivers used to, um, experience prior to, to hands, um, both, um, how interesting. So they now recognize the importance of them. They, they acknowledge they make a difference. They must do. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and it's, the same went for the halo. Um, the halo was uh, probably, I could say, universally hated as a as, a, as an addition to the car. Um, it certainly doesn't look great, um, but now, um, as a consequence of a, a number of um, of number of impacts, um, again, the, that has um, proven to be a a, a life saver. And um, a, but a lot of the drivers, no, they really, really did not like it at all. Um, and and a lot of a lot of motorsport fans didn't, um, which is an interesting one. They they often use the uh, the phrase it was not part of the DNA of um, of Formula One racing. But um, as anybody who uh, who believes in evolution, you know, DNA changes, so therefore so should the so should the cars. Right, we're going to have to leave our chat with Ian there and I hope you will join us soon for part two of this podcast where we'll hear more about the fascinating medical world behind Formula One. Mm -hmm.